Last week, we shared how so many people are living in despair, struggling to believe that believing in God really makes a difference. And we find ourselves wondering sometimes whether anything we do really matters. I'm sure you've been there. How many times have we prayed believing, prayed earnestly, and yet the prayer wasn't answered in just the way we thought that maybe it should be answered. Initially, when looking from a a purely human perspective, we pointed out how life under the sun, when, when Solomon looked at life under the sun, and asked the question, is life worth, worth, worth living? He said, no. From a purely human perspective, with no God, monotonous, questionable as to even any meaning that's there. And yet, when Solomon revisited that question, and revisited his arguments, looking at this final time through, having God in the picture, what a difference it made. He realized that life was not monotonous, but filled with challenging situations from God. I had an old friend who used to say, there are no problems in life. They're just opportunities that God gives us to work out solutions. You know, when you bring God into the picture, then each of those situations has its time and and each kind of has a purpose. That even though man's wisdom can't explain everything, Solomon concluded that it was better to follow God's wisdom than to follow the practice man's folly. Wealth. Wealth could be enjoyed. Wealth could be employed to the glory of God. Now, not many people are successful in doing that. But some are. Some are able to give every bit of of what they earn back. Many are able to give a tithe of, of not only their own personal income, but what their companies make. And regarding the certainty of death, there's no way to escape it, is there? The reality of death ought to motivate us to enjoy life in the here and now. And to make opportunity. To use those opportunities that God gives us. This morning, I want to begin with two questions. And the first question is, What are you waiting for in order to enjoy life? You see, I I hear people all the time say, well, you know, when this or that happens, how many people do you know that are waiting for their ship to come in? Well, you know, if that check just arrives, we know somebody that every single day, every single day, And every single week plays the daily lottery and the weekly lottery 
just thinking that one of these days he's going to hit it big. And when I do, it's always this way. And when I do, there was an article in what's called DailyMail.com. It's a it's a news publication that comes online. And in the article, they actually gave a list of the top ten things that people believed that they couldn't live without. I was shocked, to be honest. Number one on the list, the Internet. Couldn't live without the Internet. Couldn't live without a television. Third one, I understand. Couldn't live without a cuddle. A trustworthy best friend. A daily shower. I, I guess I'm there. Man, I, sometimes it's not one but two. Central air and heating. Now, how many of you spent most of your life without central air and heating? You know? We didn't die, did we? We survived. I was grateful that we had that great big attic fan that you could open the windows just an inch or two and Dad could turn that on at night on some of those hot nights. Obviously, this study is out of Britain because they can't live without their cup of tea. And I love you occasionally. A solid marriage. A car. Now, you see, I knew there were some problems with this as soon as I looked at it because coffee and chocolate came in 12th and 13th. They should have been up there in the top ten somewhere. Top five. And you know what else? A good book wasn't even in the top 20. So, you know, there were problems right away with the list. But think about it. What are things that you have come to believe that you just can't live without? The second question that I want to ask you this morning when you travel, we just made a trip out to New Hampshire and back. I'm different than my wife and my daughter. Because when we travel, I'm a straight through person. In fact, the more times we stop, the more anxious I get. The more times my daughter has to say, chill dad, it's okay. We don't have anything pressing when we get there anyway. Are you a straight through or are you a stop and enjoy it? Summer vacations that include a road trip have been around as long as I can remember. Uh, we always took at least one trip to Buffalo and Clarence, New York in the summers when I was growing up. Our vacation every year was spent on going to visit grandparents. We lived so far away. Uh, we didn't have those camping vacations or go sightseeing vacations. Our vacations were always to go and visit the grandparents. Dad's mom and dad lived in Buffalo. Mom's mom and dad lived in Clarence. Clarence is just really a suburb of Buffalo. But we always went out there for our vacation. And guess what? My dad is a straight through person. You get in the car, you drive till the car needs gas, I don't mean to be tacky, but you get rid of your gas while you're getting the car some gas, and then you move on. 
Uh, and if, if you're hungry, you get something to eat while you're stopped too. You don't make a special trip just to stop to get something to eat. It's all done in that one stop. I'm told that people are divided into two groups. And the thing is, is that the straight through folks, they're focusing on their destination, aren't they? The vacation begins when they reach that certain location. And only then can they relax and enjoy themselves. You know what I found out this last vacation we took? It's been a long time since we took two weeks together. I think it goes all the way back to early when we were over in Illinois, back around 205. I found out that I didn't really start relaxing until near the end of the first week. That there were still things from camp and church that were just churning through my mind. The take it easy people, they kind of appreciate the journey. The vacation starts when they get in the car and it includes many stops and many detours along the way. And the final destination could actually turn out to be a total disappointment, but they still find the vacation worthwhile because of many of the things they enjoyed along the way, going and coming back. And here's my point. People approach life in the same two ways. Some enjoy the journey itself. But many people make the mistake of indefinitely putting off the enjoyment of life until they reach a certain destination. Let me tell you about a prime example. My friend, Pete Juki. Pete was my lieutenant on the police department for a while. Pete and his wife never had children. Pete was a career military man. Now, the majority of his career wasn't tough because he traveled with the marksman unit around the nation doing demonstrations uh, to encourage people to join the military. When he retired from the military, he went straight to the police department and did another 20-year career with the police department. While he was on the police department, he told me in a private conversation, he banked every one of his military retirement checks. They lived off of what he made from the police department. When he was about one month from retirement, Pete called me into the office. I got in there, went in and sat down. He said, Chauncey, don't make the mistake that we made. He had already told me that with what he had saved up, he and his wife could spend $100 a day and never touch their principal. And they were going to enjoy life. That was after they bought a new boat. He called me in the office and he said, Chauncey, don't make the mistake that we did. Lou has terminal cancer. And they're not giving her six weeks to live. She's that far along. 
Pete worked hard. He was dedicated. Never missed a day. Spent all of that time focusing on how he was going to enjoy life once he retired. And for what? You see, they spend their time and energy building towards some some distant time when they can sit back and relax and finally kick off their shoes and enjoy life. And that philosophy of life would be fine except for one problem. It's not biblical. Is there a goal you're seeking to achieve? Or a circumstance that you're awaiting so that you can enjoy life more? Let's look at our text for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7, actually through verse 6 of chapter 12, but right now I want to read verses 7 to 10, the closing verses of chapter 11. Life, or light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart, that should be heart, not here, let your heart cheer. Cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Did you notice that we're actually allowed, we're granted permission to enjoy life? Solomon began answering the question of how we can enjoy life in the present with these words. The light is present. I used to have to hear my father, and I mean have to hear, because there were sometimes I was not ready to hear. I used to have to hear my father in the morning, almost every single morning, bellow out nice and loud, thinking everybody should be awake. Oh, what a beautiful morning! He thrilled in the idea that God had given him another day to live. And he enjoyed life. He had on his wall, and I have it in my office, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Solomon could have been referring to life in general, along with its simple pleasures, as gifts from God. The message... It is good to simply be alive. Another way to understand this passage, by the way, is in keeping with the imagery of the Old Testament poetic books in which light and sun are frequently used to represent warmth and security of God's loving presence. For instance, the psalmist. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27. Or again, 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84. You see, these two interpretations aren't contradictory. Having awareness of God's love and God's grace requires us to acknowledge that He gives us the simple things to enjoy. And that's been a common theme throughout Ecclesiastes. We saw it back in chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 9. And Solomon reinforces it here in verse 8. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Please listen to me. You don't have to wait for a new job. That perfect opportunity, that longed-for relationship, or even until you can, basically until we can get our own act together. We don't have to wait to enjoy the light that comes from God. We can begin basking in His love and in His grace now. Secondly, what have often been referred to as the traditional limitations, they've been removed. Some people declare that the time to appreciate life is during childhood. Others insist that because young people have many difficulties and adjustments to make, the best time to find happiness is when we're independent of our parents and in touch with our own identities. And then for some, there comes that midlife crisis. I'll bet you, I'm looking for smiles. I'll bet you, you know somebody who when they got to their 40s, all of a sudden had to have their braces done on their teeth or had to have a special hairdo done or had to buy a new sporty vehicle because they were going through that midlife crisis. They didn't want to admit they were getting older. Uh, Those uh, gray hairs get covered up. You see, when all of this fails, people sometimes look forward to retirement. I had a guy, I shared this with you, told me, boy, I don't see how you can say you're never going to retire. As soon as I reach early opportunity, I'm doing it. I said, you're not even 62? He said, no. I was 67 when he was telling me that. You'll change your mind when you get to be my age. I was past it and I hadn't changed my mind and still haven't. You see, Solomon's words suggest that all of those approaches to life are wrong. We can go back to verse 8 once more. Because he encourages us to enjoy all, all of the years we spend on earth. He even spoke specifically to the young person in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in or during your youth. And let your heart cheer you during the days of young manhood. In other words, Solomon is breaking the traditional ideas that we often place on people that there is a particular time when it's right and only that time. I'm happy to hear the news about Rochelle. 
Uh, because I know often young couples who are like in her situation in the military where they think, well, you know, we gotta, we got to put off child rearing until everything's perfect. Anybody here over the age of 20 who has found anything perfect yet? But you know what? Solomon also gives us warnings. Warnings to keep us obedient. I want you to notice something with me. Look again at the last statement in verse 9. He says to walk in the ways. In other words, to follow the impulses of our hearts and the sight or the desires of our eyes. That verse has been ripped out of context and used to fuel all sorts of extremes from people saying, well, I, I think God wants me to leave my family situation. I had a young girl say, I, I know that the Bible speaks against what I am doing, but I, I believe in my heart that God told me that this is the right thing for me at this point. I've had people say, no, God wants me to be happy and go on big credit card shopping sprees. Well, we don't have to look very far though to find the answer. We don't have to seek out passages to provide the proper balance. Solomon does it himself. Verse 8, remember the days of darkness will be many. Tough times will come. It's guaranteed. They'll be marked by pain by disappointment, by struggles, by sorrow. You weren't the only person, Cindy, that picked up on what I said last Sunday. Cindy came into the office and said, uh, did I hear you right last Sunday? Yeah. When I was sitting on the beach in New Hampshire, I turned to my wife and I said, is it time for me to just hang it up and quit? Disappointments. I fully believed. I told Mark and Tom Wilson and the others that were in the meeting. I fully believed that by this point, five years into the picture, we would be at least over 50 and 60 in our average attendance. Now I know it would be easy to blame COVID. But I am not accepting COVID as a blame for anything. Good grief, the church didn't die during the swine flu, did it? We didn't hunker down in fear. No, it's not because of swine flu. It's because of godless spiritual epidemic and flu in our society and in our lives. We are living in a time in which people in Afghanistan right now are going to church regardless of the fact that they are facing death by doing it. And we won't go to church when any little thing comes up. Anything. So Solomon 
says you need to remember that there are going to be trials. And the trials will set limits on the activities in which we can engage, but they don't need to disillusion us or steal the joy that comes our way. Remember what James says? <coughs> Brother of Jesus? Chapter 1 starts out his letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If we come to grips with the fact that much of life is going to be dark at times, then the light that does come from God will seem all that much more brilliant. Secondly, Solomon also reminds us that God's going to judge how we've lived. So we need to make sure that we're pursuing our desires with wisdom and prudence. I like the words of Chuck Swindoll. Anybody do any reading in Chuck Swindoll? I love to listen to him when he speaks. I love to read what he writes. Chuck Swindoll said, listen to me. If you go hog wild, you might end up roasting on a spit. Because that's what you do with wild hogs, isn't it? You put them on that spit and you roast them. Gene got another one when they went hunting here not too long ago. As believers, we are going to be held accountable for our actions in life. Last week I put a picture of a silhouette. <coughs> a picture of my friend Bub Bauer. Next to it a picture of a silhouette of Larry. I don't even know his last name. And I don't have to wait to heaven. Because every day I am confronted by myself with the guilt of not having said something to Larry that might have led him to be one who desired to live eternally with God. Are we telling other people about Jesus Christ? Are we sharing with them the good news? Are we inviting them to worship with us? If not, then shame on us. A third warning that he gives us in verse 10. Remove vexation. That is, remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life. What we might call the prime of life. Those are fleeting. They don't last very long. And though we might be able to control our behavior... The internal responses of anger and resentment toward external events are often, most often, out of control and they are robbing us from our joy. My friend, Dr. Terry Shee, God bless him, he retired from full-time medicine and went into professional banjo playing. He and a bunch of guys travel around playing bluegrass music He's a medical doctor by training, but he doesn't practice medicine anymore. But Terry Shee said every time a new patient came into his office, if they were having problems with headaches, he'd say, what are you anxious about? What's causing you stress? 
ulcers, same thing. Problems with their colons. What are you angry about? What are you trying to, what kind of anger are you trying to hold in and repress? Those things that we don't take care of externally go internal and they are out of control and they ruin us of the joy we can have in life. It doesn't do the other person very much good for you to tell them you're sorry. It's not for them. When you tell somebody, I forgive you, it's not for them. It's for you. If you don't forgive somebody, it's going to eat you up and they're going to have control over you. They might not ever change. In many cases, won't. We may not be able to control the circumstances in our life. But with God's help, we can control our responses to those circumstances. We can even remove the bitterness, anger, and rebellion that can easily surface in our souls. If we will work at it, turn it over to God, pray about it. That's why in keeping with Solomon's tone throughout Ecclesiastes, one commentator adds a realistic perspective on this verse when he says, the point is that one should not allow consternation over human ills to consume one, not that one should stupidly be oblivious to the human troubles. We don't ignore them, but we don't allow them to control us. The psalm. This Cindy read as a part of our preparation for communion. Solomon knew that there are things that cause us pain that we are, that are subject to our control. He tells us to put away things that cause pain in our body. And these might include habits and situations that we willingly participate in. Or at least ones we haven't done anything to avoid. Obvious pain producers in our modern world are things like drugs, Alcohol. Poor eating habits. Man, I can tell you that one. I can tell you from experience how much better I feel, how much more energy I have when I quit allowing my addictions to food to control me. Whatever they may be, we can put behind those destructive attitudes, added activities. We can put them out of our lives if we want to really experience the joy it has to give us. What negative circumstances are you dealing with that are affecting your life? Solomon gets very blunt as he begins what we know of as chapter 12. I'm going to leave it for you to go back and read those first eight verses. But he shares with us what he believes to be essential ingredients of happiness. Finally, after, after written several journal entries on the dissatisfaction and the despair, Solomon rises above that deep fog of life and reveals what's absolutely necessary for us to experience joy in our lives. While he has hinted at it throughout what we refer to as a desperate journey, in chapter 12, verse 1, his voice rings out clearly. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in that. 
You hear what he's saying? After all the investigations that he has conducted, with all that he has experienced in his life, his conclusion, to use other words, is that our happiness is directly linked to our relationship with and our obedience to God. And when we live according to the Word of God, maintaining faithfulness to Jesus Christ, when we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin experience the Lord's abundant joy regardless of our age or life circumstances. Man, there isn't a better poem about old age than what you'll read in chapter 12, verses 2 to 5. Ah, the imagery, the snow-topped heads, the teeth, What a beautiful picture of the aging process that Solomon gives us in those verses. But there's also limitations. Solomon covers everything from cataracts to arthritis, from graying hair to loss of hearing, and even the dragging legs that once hopped like grasshoppers. So what's the conclusion? What's the final factor? He gives it to us in verses 6 to 8. The sands of time are running out, aren't they? He says, remember God, listen, before the silver cord snapped, before the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, And dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The gradual signs of aging should remind us that unless the Lord returns, every one of us will die one day. A hundred percent certain. And after that, there's not going to be any further opportunity to serve God and to enjoy His good gifts. Moreover, as I understand the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. If we are not in a right relationship with God when we die, it's too late. We can't pray somebody out of hell. We can't give enough to get somebody out of hell if that's the course they have set their life on. And that's a tough one for me to say and to hear because I have somebody that I love very dearly that don't have anything to do with the church and with God and with Jesus Christ. And why would I think that they're going to be in heaven if they don't want anything to do with this church here on earth? But you see, that doesn't need to be a a frightening prospect. Because verse 28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation with reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. That's the message of the parables. Have your lamps ready. Be waiting for the bridegroom when He returns. Be ready for that thief that's going to come in the night. So here's my final question. 
What about you? Are you living in fear? Fear of death? Or are you living in eagerness to be with the Lord forever? Are you experiencing the joy that can only come with a life lived in godliness? Let's pray.